It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you as always. Jerry, how are you today? Great, Steve. How are you? Fantastic. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. He loves your emails. I do. He actually told me the other day he was disappointed he's not getting as many as he used to. I'm, I'm kidding. Did I really no. say that? I, that's not true. <laughs> I'm just trying to get you more emails. I'm trying to keep you busy, Jer. No, I really I really do. I don't respond to all of them, obviously, because just there's just a, kind of a lot. But send them on. I read them all. I love them all. The bass intro and outro done, as always, by Lex. He's amazing. And Jarrah, here you've got a fantastic email to read us today, and I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, it's an email about our covers show. Oh, yeah, that was fun. I think we have yeah. to do another one. Oh, we're absolutely, yeah, we're absolutely doing another one. <laughs> <laughs> because people are sending us new Rush covers yes. that I had never heard of. Right, well, that's what this, in this email, there's oh. a good Rush cover, which I wanted to save, you know, for the next episode, whenever that happens but this one is so good i just wanted to share it now okay great let's hear it so it's from jared hey jared and he says i love 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 the podcast three loves three loves wow three loves in a row he's the first person to love it three times yeah sometimes it's twice usually it's once usually it's love me two times not three (laughs) (laughs) wrong band steve um I look forward to it so much on Monday mornings, and I especially enjoyed your recent episode on Rush cover songs. I was out running while listening to it, and you should have seen the odd shuffle I did when you played the loungy version of The Trees. (laughs) I was wondering if you'd ever heard this version of The Spirit of Radio by Lucky Uke. It's definitely its own spin on a song instead of remaining faithful to the original. Now, this guy, Lucky Uke, plays on the ukulele oh wow so there is a ukulele version of spirit radio should we listen to it now should we put it in the podcast now oh yeah yeah that's a great idea All the 
how he you know captures that guitar sound like the the little bit of the the intro I'm not playing the intro but you can hear some notes from it it's, it's a that guy's a virtuoso on uh, on that ukulele yeah that is amazing yeah why did we not hear of that steve i've gotten so many different uh, versions of songs i can't wait to do another one I, I can't wait let's do it soon let's do it soon okay is there more of that email to read uh yes uh, he says, also, I was wondering if you'd consider doing an episode on songs that sampled Rush. There are a bunch of rap songs that did this, and I really like some of them. You can find a full list on Power Windows. So, 2112.net, Power Windows Tributes. There is a full list of rap songs that sample Rush. Wow. He says, a favorite of mine is the one that samples The Necromancer. Really? So when you go on that site, you yeah, I didn't I didn't look that one up yet. Do you want to put that one in too? Let's save it. Let's save it. We sh- we should do an episode on that. Yeah. Okay. Good idea. Let's save it. We'll save it for later for sure. Anyway, he he signs off again. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Cheers, Jared. Jared, thanks so much. That is awesome. So that's just representative of the emails that I've gotten. Every email has at least one link to something. Some of them are really, really good. You know, we could probably do more than one more Rush Covers episode. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what the, uh, we should just do from now on. It's just <laughs> play covers of Rush songs. That, that could be the podcast. Yeah, and eventually you and I will work up to playing a cover of a Rush song. Well, Jerry, we've been lucky enough to have a lot of great authors on the podcast lately. That's true. And there's another new book out about Rush. It's called Rush the day I was there, and the author is Richard Houghton. Richard, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. We'd like to start by asking our guests what their Rush origin story is. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan, Richard? Okay, well, I'm 60 years old, and I went to university at the age of 18 here in the UK. And at that point, I was a fan of Black Sabbath, a fan of Deep Purple, and of Led Zeppelin. So I was into heavy metal, as we, we called it then in the UK. And I bought quite a few albums. All of my friends from school were into the same kind of music. And there was a show on the radio called the Friday Rock Show on BBC Radio, which was the only place you really got to hear heavy rock music. But I hadn't heard any Rush. I did not know that Rush existed at the age of 18 in 1978. It was when I went to college and met a guy who was a Rush fan who introduced me to them. That's how I discovered them. And, I mean, he was a mad Rush fan. He had a denim jacket with the star man embroidered <laughs> on the back of it, which his mother had done for him without really knowing what she was doing. But And he introduced me to them. So he introduced me to 2112. He introduced me to all of the early albums. 
And up until that time, I did not know that they existed. So it was quite strange, really. I, mean, I know it reflects the experience of, of Rush fans in the US and as well, that Rush did not get a lot, a lot of radio play. But I mean, that A, there weren't a lot of places you could hear rock music on British radio. And B, even if you did, Rush were not played a lot. You know, we, we didn't have college radio stations. If you had a college radio station in the UK, they actually literally played within the confines of the college campus. Their radio license would not allow them to even broadcast across the street from oh, wow. the college campus. And we didn't have and still don't really have a, a network of city radio stations. So you wouldn't have a regional radio station in 1978 that played music to that area. So you wouldn't have like a Boston station or a Detroit station. Everything came out of London and there was little or nothing played mm. in the way of a rock. And then, like I say, it was down to the individual DJs and Rush were not any particular DJs favourites. You did not hear much of it on the radio. So that's how I discovered them through a friend. That's usually how it happens. Either that or an older brother. <laughs> yeah. And I, I am the oldest and, uh, <laughs> Neither of my two sisters um, have ever shown any inclination to get into Rush. So that was 78, you said, around there? Yeah. So Hemispheres was, was your introduction? Like, what was the first time you, what was the first album? Did you get Hemispheres and work your way back from there? Or did you, was it 2112? 2112, because we used to um, sit around and listen to 2112. I mean, <laughs> I, again, maybe part of my uh, straight-laced British upbringing, but there wasn't a lot of smoking of... Um, substances or anything like that with the kids I hung out with, you know, as we got older, you know, and got introduced to the more cosmopolitan tastes of, um, of the college students. Maybe there was a little bit of that, but it was never really my scene. But, you know, we'd sit around and drink beer and, and listen to Rush albums and 2112 was the one really for me. So Richard, this is not your first The Day I Was There book, is it? How many others have you done and why did you choose to do Rush this time? Okay, no, I've done um, nine or 10 books now. The first one I did was a book about the Rolling Stones. I mean, the, the Rolling Stones are my true love when it comes to music. And I've been seeing the Stones about 25 times. And I collect books on the Stones. And I've got about 200 books about the Rolling Stones. I went to see them in 2015 when they played a gig in Stockholm in Sweden. And it was July, so it was July 2015. Mick Jagger celebrates his birthday in July. And he was turning 71 later that month. And it suddenly struck me that the Stones had been playing for 50 years and that I was stood amongst a bunch of fans. And 50 years ago, there would have been people watching the Stones on stage playing. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard people's memories of those early shows. So people might have seen the Stones and told their friends at the time down the pub or even tell their stories now down the pub or to their family but they hadn't necessarily had a chance to tell anybody else about those stories. Whereas now you go to a show and just about everybody will have a, a smartphone and will be filming the gig. And then you better watch it later on YouTube, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe within an hour of the, or less of the gig finishing. Back then you couldn't do that. And I just thought it'd be really nice to capture the memories of some of those people who'd seen those early shows, who hadn't had the chance to YouTube them or even tell their stories to other people because it was, music history, but also social history back to a time before there was the internet or before there was even widespread media coverage of shows because all those people who are in their teens or early 20s back in the 1960s would now be in their late 60s or early 70s 
and in reality weren't going to be here forever. So I thought I want to capture some of that if I could. So I did that because I was a Stones fan mm-hmm. and it was a, a great, it was a fun exercise to do. I loved hearing people's stories. And from there I moved on to other bands. So I've done a book on Led Zeppelin. I've done a book on Jimi Hendrix. I've done a book on Black Sabbath. And, and I've always picked bands that I'm a fan of. And being a Rush fan, it was a natural progression to do a book on Rush. I started the book about 18 months ago and started reaching out to people on Facebook and sending people messages and interacting with people and getting them to um, talk to me about their memories. And then, of course, Neil died. And having collected maybe 150 stories, I just thought maybe this isn't the right thing to do anymore because it felt like if I carried on, it might be seen as being opportunistic and taking advantage of a of a really unfortunate set of circumstances. But when I said to the people who I'd already spoken to that I wasn't thinking of doing any more with the book, they said to me, no, you must do the book. This is absolutely the reason why you should do it, because it's an opportunity for people to talk about their love of the band, their love of Neil, and it's an opportunity to respect his memory and recognise that Rush as a band can be no more because with Neil's passing, there's no possibility of a reunion. There's no possibility of a Vegas residency or a one or two one-off shows or all the ideas that were being talked about in the months leading up to his death. Very much about being a fan and you know loving their music and wanting to hear about other people's memories of them, how they got into them and their personal journeys with the band. Yeah, so it's it's more like a like an oral history. Usually you get oral histories from from the people who are in that arena, whether it's like a TV show or something like that. But this is an oral history of fans. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing I wanted to try and do, going back to that first Stones book, it was telling a, a band story from a different perspective. Because with some bands, if you you buy what's tagged as a new book, if it's a subject you're already familiar with, you often think, hang on a minute, I've read this already 15 times over. Because understandably a lot of writers go back to the main source material and then rehash or press reports or the definitive biographies of a band that have already been published and you find as a fan that you're often reading stuff that you've read a hundred times before and i just thought the fan perspective is different so the key players in a in a band whether it's the band themselves or it's the management or the support act may have a story to tell but how often does the fan's story get told and the fan's perspective is different of course the band might think they played a great show that night. The fan might remember their truck breaking down on the way to the gig or their friend taking too many drugs or being thrown out of the venue by the by the security guys. You know, different things happen to people at a gig. Now, were the Rush fans you talked to, Richard, were they different than, say, the Stones fans or the Black Sabbath fans you talked to or, or heard from? Were they more passionate about seeing Rush live than, say, Black Sabbath fans were seeing Black Sabbath live? Yeah, I mean, I think there were two or three things that really struck me. One was how knowledgeable Rush fans were about their band and the lyrics and the meaning behind the lyrics. So, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful to other fans, but I was really struck by how intellectual Rush fans were. So a lot of the stuff that people wrote for me where they they sent me something rather than talking to me was really well written. And from an editorial point of view, it was an easier book to put together perhaps than maybe a Black Sabbath book where people were much more about how much beer they drank, what drugs <laughs> they did, 
you know, how Ozzy was a great guy. And, and that was the extent of the story sometimes. Also, the real family sense around, around Rush fans. So both the sense of community between fans and how going to a gig, you'd meet other people that you'd met at other shows and how people would meet up and had a network outside of just the music. But also in terms of people taking their own children or in some cases, grandchildren to shows because they'd grown up with the band themselves and introduced their kids to the music and really wanted the opportunity to take their teenager to a to a show. And there's two or three really touching stories in the book of people who took their kids to a show and Getty threw them a T-shirt or Alex threw them a T-shirt at the show or, or they sent a member of the road crew out with a, with a gift for one of the kids, you know, and that real approachability of the band and inclusiveness of the band towards their fans yeah there's a there's a few stories in there about rush's interaction with their fans it seems like there was a a give and take there a lot of times that you know getty and alex were definitely uh, approachable and they would start you know conversations with their fans and and sometimes being pen pals right that's right alex is famous isn't he for gurning on stage pulling faces and uh <laughs> doing things that maybe undermine the, the the security guys on the front row of the stage, for example, are standing there all beefed up and trying to look big and tough. And there's Alex pulling faces and getting the, the guys on the front row sort of in hysterics at the, at the faces he's pulling. I mean, that, that's great. And that's, I suppose, if, if you didn't know anything about Rush and you just listened to the music, you might think, oh, here's another set of guys who play guitars, play keyboards, play drums, and they're all po-faced and serious about their music. And actually, that's quite the opposite of the the real life image of the guys when they're on stage. You know, they they went out and played and had fun, and they wanted their audience to have fun too. The whole thing about the washing machines, you know, the <laughs> all the all the stage effects they used, it was about not taking themselves too seriously. And yet, that isn't the impression that you would necessarily get if you were to read, particularly the British music press in the nineteen seventies, because Rush were part of that army, I suppose of dinosaur bands as they were seen who punk rock were meant to displace all these people with long hair double neck guitars lots of stage lighting lots of effects pretentious lyrics but punk was meant to get rid of all of that because these guys were too far up their collective backsides to really connect with a common man and woman and actually rush proved that to be the absolute opposite so richard before we get into the stories in your book why don't you tell us about the day you were there What's your greatest Rush show memory? Well, I only have one Rush show memory because I only actually saw Rush once, and that was they played New Bingley Hall in Stafford in England. And I went with the, the guy I talked about, who was um, one who had his mom's so the uh, Starman logo on the back of his denim jacket, and a couple of other guys. We drove over from a place called Norwich in the east of England, so it's about a hundred and fifty mile drive to the venue. I remember we went there in a in a blue Fiat eight hundred and fifty Sport which my best friend drove. And the reason why I remember it so vividly is for two reasons. One is this car was a two plus two car. So the two back seats were really only big enough for very small children. <laughs> we had four adults in the car. And the other is that the car, if it stopped, would not start again until the engine cooled down. <laughs> so we had 150 mile drive without any deliberate stops because once we stopped, that was it. And of course, we'd been drinking as we were driving, so we were all desperate for a bathroom break. So at one point during the journey, 
a large plastic container was produced, which we had to then try and use as we were driving along and then pour the contents out the window. That didn't work. We did have to stop in the end, and then we did have an enforced break by the side of the road for 20 minutes while we wait for the car to cool down so we can push start it to get us, get us there. And then the, the venue, the, the gig itself, so New Bingley Hall, well, I don't think it exists anymore, but it was a cattle shed. It was actually used for auctions of cattle. Wow. And famously, it's where Queen got the idea for the song We Will Rock You because the audience were stamping their feet and banging their hands on the side of the, the shed, and that created the, the, the um, drum beat that Freddie and Brian got the idea for the intro to We Will Rock You from. But many bands who played there would comment on the smell of the place because it often smelt of cow manure because it was often used for <laughs> storing cows up to maybe two or three days before before a show. And that was true of Rush, you know, it, it was an October show and it had been used for cattle just a few days before the show. But, you know, it was a, it was a great show. It was, it was also significant because I think it was the first time they'd actually brought their North American production over to Europe because previously they'd played places like the Hammersmith Odeon mm-hmm. or the Glasgow Apollo or the Liverpool Empire Theatre, which were all, you know, 1920s or whatever theatres often built in the Art Deco style, but classic cinema-type setups, whereas the new Bingley Hall being just a shed meant they could actually have the full video screen and, and production with all the lights and everything. So it was I, was, I got to see Rush just the once, but it was the kind of show that you'd see in the US and Canada. What was the date of the show, Richard? It was October 81, I think. Wow. That's great. So moving picture store. That's right. You know, you mentioned fans bringing their kids and sometimes their grandkids. And I guess that's a luxury of being a Rush fan is that they were active for so long and not just active, you know, almost like a legacy act of just trotting out their hits every once in a while, but they had new albums consistently for 40 years. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why also that fans connected with Rush so much. It's because there was always new stuff to connect with. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things that struck me from talking to people is how after the hiatus for five years, when they came back with Vapor Trails, they seemed to have rediscovered themselves as a band. And obviously Neil was ready to record and play again. And quite a few people admitted to me that they maybe parted ways with Rush in the, in the late 80s as the, the keyboard and synths took over. So they... They reconnected with the band themselves in 2002 and rediscovered or maybe discovered for the first time some of those albums that they'd perhaps not listened to quite so vividly because the band's sound had changed and they were really pleased to do that. And so they fell in love with the band again, really, in the early 2000s. And I guess, yeah, people had grown up in that time, so they were rediscovering the band, but maybe they'd got kids of their own then, so the kids were listening to the music as well. and obviously with the modern household where you've got the opportunity to listen to music independently of your parents, you know, it, it isn't like the household I grew up in to begin with. There was only, there was this, what we call the stereogram, which was in the living room yep. and you couldn't listen to music if your father wanted to watch the TV and you didn't necessarily have stereo in your own room. Certainly in Britain, you know, those kind of things were a luxury to begin with. Whereas in a modern household, everybody's got, access to streaming music or they've got access to an iPod or they've got their own sound system maybe. 
So you could have three kids and mom and dad and everybody's listening to something different. But in a Rush household, you might have everybody listen to Rush, just different things at different times. Yeah, we had in our living room uh, an enormous piece of furniture that was the, the stereo, you know, it was the, the record player and these two gigantic speakers covered in fabric. And, but it was, took up like so much space. It sounded great, but, you know, we had to listen to Helen Reddy or something. I'm not sure what we were listening to back then. <laughs> so, Richard, the most amazing story to me in the book is the first one. You talked to Peter Brockbank, who played in a band with Neil yes. during his time in London, which I'd never heard anything about this time in Neil's life. Uh, how did you connect with Peter and tell us about that? Well, I came across Peter because he actually contributed a story to my Black Sabbath book. And so Black Sabbath, they were originally called Earth. And when Ozzy Osbourne and Bill Ward joined the band, they fulfilled a, a load of gigs that Tony Iommi and, and Geezer Butler, the guitarist and bass player respectively, had already committed to with a the lineup they were previously in, in a band called Mythology, who played a lot in the northeast of, sorry, in the northwest of England, in up in Cumbria, which is about 100 miles north of Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And Peter lived in, and still lives in Carlisle. So Peter knew Tony Iommi. Tony Iommi used to go round to his flat and strum a guitar with him and hang out with him before, just before Black Sabbath broke and became famous with with their first album and then with the Paranoid album. And Peter's parting shot to me after he gave me the story about Black Sabbath was, let me know when you do about a book about Rush, because I wrote it for Neil and I knew Neil before he became famous. Wow. So when I started working on the Rush book, I reconnected with, with Peter and uh, he, he taught me through his story. And the story, for those people who don't already know it, is that, Neil came to England before he was famous and he wound up working in a shop in Carnaby Street, which is in the centre of London. It's the um, iconic street, which is associated with the screen 60s. And I think it was a gift shop or a clothes shop. And Peter Brockbank, who I interviewed for the book, went down to London with his friend who was hoping to make it big in the music business. And this guy ended up working in the same shop as Neil. So Peter, who by his own admission was a bit of a petty criminal at the time, <laughs> ended up driving Neil and this other guy around because Neil started playing drums for this short-lived band in London and played, played drums with them for three or four months. And they ended up in a van that Peter had stolen from the company that he worked for, had it re-sprayed, <laughs> and Neil would, would ride shotgun with him when they'd drive to gigs and it was obviously in the days before sat-nav, so Neil would often uh, be the guy with the road atlas working out what street they needed to get to and would, would do all the navigating for him. And apparently they bonded over that. So when Rush came to tour Europe, I think it was 88, Neil reached out to Peter, who had stayed in touch with all that time, including some periods when Peter had actually been in prison. And Peter says Neil used to send him money occasionally to help him through the really hard times. Neil said, do you want a job? Do you want to be my driver around Europe? And so Peter worked with Neil on a couple of European tours. What are some of your other favorite stories in the book? Do you have some? Yeah, well, one of my favorites is the, uh, the guy, uh, Doug Shelby, who um, rode his motorcycle to a gig. 
So he was working away from home, couldn't get tickets for what would have been his local show if he was at home. But he figured out that he could actually get to a show the next day and he didn't have a ticket for it, but he figured he'd, drive, he'd ride to this show and he rode his motorcycle 25 hours without a break to get to this show Wow! in the hope of getting, getting a ticket. I hope he had one of those big jugs too, like you had. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, he rode for 25 hours, you know, the, the stops were comfort breaks and that's all it was. At one point, he must have dozed off whilst he was on his bike because another rider came alongside him and sort of steered him towards the curb to uh, point out to him that he was wobbling all over the road. So he stopped his bike, you know, gave himself a good talking to and took a few minutes break and then got going again. Anyway, he arrived at the show. He only had $100 on him and he figured he could get a ticket and maybe get a burger and a drink with that money. So he went up to the box office and said, what have you got? And they, I think they had a $60 ticket. So he was about to pay for the $60 ticket. And then the woman at the back of the box office said, what about that other ticket? So Doug says, what are the ticket? And then it turned out they had a $93 ticket. So he said, I'll take the $93 <laughs> ticket, even though there's only going to leave him with $7 for a beer and a burger, which probably wouldn't have been much of a burger for, for that kind of money. So he buys this ticket and he walks in and he shows his ticket to security and they wave him through to the next stage of the arena and he gets waved through and he gets waved through and he winds up on the front row. Wow. So he's driven 25 hours. He didn't have a ticket when he arrived and somehow he's wound up on the front row. So it was like, what am I going to do tomorrow? I know I'll go and see Rush. <laughs> yeah. And he ends up on the front row. Wow. And, it's, and he tells the story really, really beautifully. So it's a fabulous little read. And what I love about that story, you know, I've tried to capture it in every story is it's a story about Rush. It's a story about the band. It's also a story about that guy, you know, his life being a motorbike rider and his love of the band and just a little glimpse into somebody's life. You get through that couple of pages. So you mentioned Black Sabbath and I noticed that Ian Gillen, I guess that's Ian Gillen from Deep Purple and Black Sabbath who's in the book, right? No, no, it's a pure coincidence. Really? Pure he looks just like yeah. him. <laughs> he does, he does, he does. And uh, you'd think with a name like that, he must get mistaken for uh, the Ian uh, all the time. That, that was my first thought. It must be the, uh, the very same, but no, it, it's not. <laughs> so how much of a help was Skip Daly in creating this book, Richard? You mentioned how invaluable Wandering the Face of the Earth was for just getting the information about the, the details of the shows. And we noticed that Skip appears in your book quite a bit. Uh, tell us about Skip's involvement with the book. Well, actually, Skip was one of the people I reached out to early on to see whether he might share a memory with me. And we, we exchanged messages. And then I didn't hear from him for a while. And I knew he was working on the Wandering the Face of the Earth book. But, but, uh, but this was prior to Neil's passing, like I say. And then I mm -hmm. parked the book for a while because I didn't think it was right to carry on with it. But he said, you know, he was interested in giving me a story and, you know, to get back to him because he was finalizing the book at the time. So I then reached out to him again and he said, you know, I'd love to contribute. And I was obviously one of the things I was really concerned about was being seen or appearing to capitalize on Neil's death because I was really concerned not to do that. But Skip was very encouraging. He said, no, you know, he, he thought the book was a great idea and he wanted to contribute memories to it. 
and you know, and he sent me three or four stories, which I've included in the book. So it was it was the encouragement really that he gave and the support that he gave. Because if he'd said to me, "I really don't think you should be doing this book. This will not be well received by fans or by the Rush family at large," then I would have I would have thought long and hard about whether it was the right thing to do. We've just marked the the anniversary of Neil's passing, and it was inevitable when people were writing about the band and their memories that people would want to talk about Neil and how they felt and where they were when Neil died and their reaction to the news and how they'd process the information and how they now viewed Neil's legacy and the band's legacy. And lots of people had a lot to say about Neil. I didn't include all of it in the books. I didn't want to make it just about the tragic events of just over a year ago and just about that chapter in in the history of Rush because I could have put a lot more in the book. I, I must have taken out around 100,000 words altogether of material that I didn't use because so many people gave me so much more stories than I could actually squeeze into the book. But I thought it was important to include as much of that as I could without making the book seem imbalanced because it was clear from people's reactions to how what happened with Neil passing and the shock of it and the suddenness of it as it was perceived to be because so few people knew what was actually happening. But it really highlighted, I think, just how much Rush means to people and how much the bands and their music means that people could be reduced to tears by the news and still reduced to tears days, weeks and months afterwards. How did you find a lot of people for this book. Did you have a mailing list? Did you just get into contact with one person who got in contact with another person? How did it all work out? A lot of it was, to be honest, through stalking people through Facebook. <laughs> so if somebody posted on a on a site saying I was at that show, or I remember going to see them at such such a tour or whatever, I'd send them a message and say, I saw your post about seeing Rush play Austin, Texas, or wherever it might be. I'm putting a book together. I'd love to hear your story if you wanted to get in touch with me. Problem for me in that, with that approach is you have to send out a lot of messages because obviously, as you may do, a lot of people get random messages from complete nutcases <laughs> on Facebook or through. You know, I'm always getting approached to launder money for Nigerian businessmen and that kind of thing. And uh, obviously, a lot of that stuff goes to junk mail. And that's true of Messenger as well, that if you send a message to somebody that you're not a friend with, it will go into their junk folder and they may never see it. But fortunately, for every 50 messages I sent, I got one positive response and maybe got a story out of that. So a lot of late night research, you know, trying to find people, set, reaching out to people, chasing them up if they didn't respond straight away, and then talking to them about their story or asking them a few more questions to develop their story into something a bit more tangible that would work in the book now were there any specific shows that you really wanted to find someone who attended that particular show but you just couldn't find someone well i obviously wanted uh, memories of, of the last show and i was able to track a few of those down and the you know the last toronto shows were important to me as well and there were two or three british people who, who flew over to toronto for the last tour I mean, and i think that was what's quite poignant i think was that a lot of british fans thought there was going to be a European leg of the final tour. And those that weren't convinced decided I've got to be there. I've got to be in Toronto or I've got to be in LA for that, for that last tour. 
and didn't wait around for the for the tour, which I think was actually, I think some dates may have been talked about, but they were never actually officially confirmed. So the people who thought, yeah, they will come over, obviously now regret not being able to be on that, seeing that last tour. I would have liked to have captured memories of some of the earlier shows, particularly when John Rutsey was a drummer, but tracing people going back to the very early days is incredibly difficult. And I've had the same experience with the other books, trying to find people who saw a band in the very early days. It's harder because obviously the audiences were smaller. The people themselves are older. Even if they were there, they can't necessarily remember the detail because they didn't necessarily recognise the significance of what they were seeing. So the likelihood of seeing somebody who saw the very early lineup of Rush and remembering clear details of that evening and saying, yeah, I was there and I can tell you what they played <laughs> and I can remember what I was wearing and the car I drove when I went to the show, etc. is very, very, very challenging. But hopefully the book through 400 different sets of eyes, 400 different sets of memories gives you a rounded picture and helps you get an idea of what it was like to, to be on the Rush journey and actually follow them through the years. So after compiling all these in-person accounts, Richard, was there anything you came away with about seeing Rush live that you weren't aware of before? Something specific about Rush shows that you didn't know? Yes, I think it was the professionalism about with which they approached the whole thing. For example, I didn't appreciate necessarily just how much time and effort was spent on lighting the shows and the and the work that Howard would put into a into a show, for example, and how closely Getty in particular would, would interact with Howard and the production team to make sure the show was absolutely spot on. I mean, it's it's common sense if you think about it, but I guess never have actually worked closely with a band in that scenario myself. I kind of assumed that, you know, if you're the guitarist, you play the guitar, mm. you remember where you've got to stand and remember the chords you've got to play, but it kind of just happens really. And obviously the most professional acts, the most successful acts, rehearse hard and they make sure everything is spot on so that for you as the paying customer, the spectator, the fan, you see a fantastic show because people know what they have to do and they know to close their eyes when the thunder flashes go off, for example, so that they can still see to carry on playing that great solo or whatever it might be after the flashes have gone. So I think it's the professionalism and the dedication that the band put into ensuring that every performance they put on was memorable, whether you'd seen Rush once or whether you'd seen Rush a hundred times. And that's why so many people, I think, became devoted followers of the band because it wasn't just about the lyrics. It wasn't just about the music and the songs and the fact that the three guys were, were really close and, and a, you know, and a, a really tight bunch of guys. It's about the fact that a Rush show was something to behold whether you're on the front row or whether you're in row Z. Now, I always ask guests this question. I'm not looking for like the final answer, but I just like all the answers that I get. What is Rush's legacy as a band? What's their place in rock and roll history? Well, it's a good question because I think it's a question that could not have been asked five years ago, six years ago, when there was still a suggestion that they were a live entity. Because I don't think you can assess a band's legacy until they are no longer actually a performing unit. And I think a band's legacy 
changes over the years as you get more perspective. So, for example, Led Zeppelin clearly never going to perform again, and therefore you have to look at the history of the band up until when they stopped playing in 1980. And I would say Russia up there with a band like Zeppelin as somebody who will be revered, who the people who saw them live will recognise as seeing something special and will, as they are doing now, talk to their children and their grandchildren if they didn't get to take them to a show and say they were a great band and will never see their like again. And I think that's particularly true of Rush because they had such an enormous history in terms of the number of shows they played and for the period of time they played without it ever being watered down because lots of bands, you could say, well, they had a golden period. They were fantastic for two or three years, but then they went off the boil. Or a band like The Who, for example, where I would argue that they were never the same after Keith Moon died. Mm-hmm. And if you see the, the Who as perform now, you know, Roger Daltrey's voice isn't what it was. And much as I love The Who, I watched a, a charity show they did a couple of years ago performing Tommy and I had to turn it off because Roger's voice isn't there anymore. And even with a, a load of extra guitars on stage and all the backing musicians to support Pete Townsend, yeah, it just didn't, wasn't the right thing. For me, The Who should have stopped in 1978 when Keith died. Rush never did that. Rush never took a false step. You could go and see Rush in 1974. You could go and see Rush in 2015 and you st- still saw a great show. So after hearing all these stories, Richard, about the day people were there, which are the shows that you heard about that you wish you were there, that you said, oh, wow, man, I wish I was at that show? I would like to have seen the R40 tour and the way they revisited their back catalogue and performed and the, and the Time Machine tour. You know, the, this is a band looking back at its own career and saying, okay, this is, we know what you want to hear as an audience. And yeah, we're going to, play some of that for you you know you're still going to get some new stuff because we we don't want to just play the old stuff but you know we're going to lay our treasures out before you and a, and a band that can play for two and a half three hours and entertain an audience like that is you know just a band at the top height of its powers and your dog likes rush too i can tell <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so what's next for you richard uh, i imagine when this book came out, you started hearing from even more Rush fans with their stories. Could there possibly be an update to this book or a second one? And if not, what other bands are you working on? Yeah, no, I'd love to do a second volume. I mean, and it is very much about whether people, you know, want to tell me their story. I've, I've, I've had maybe 20 or 30 stories come through already, but I, you know, if anybody else is out there wants to share their memories with me, I'd love to hear them. The publisher would do another book if I got the material together. So a volume two is entirely possible. All right. I'll send you my story tomorrow then. Okay. <laughs> we'll send you our stories for sure. Uh, but what's the email address we can have our listeners send their stories to? And they will, believe me. Okay. Well, if people want to send me the story, the email address is I was at that gig at gmail.com. I was at that gig at gmail.com. Well, Richard, it was uh, fantastic talking to you today. The book again is Rush. The day I was there, Richard Houghton, thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. So, Jared, another terrific author on the Rush Fancast. How great was that? Yeah, I know. What did we do to deserve a great guest, Steve? I don't know, but my favorite story, I think, 
was his story and it wasn't even in the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was great. That's, any, any story that has, you know, a jar to go to the bathroom in, you, you already got me hooked. So what's your favorite story of all the shows you've attended over the years, Jerry? What's your favorite story about something that happened before, during, or after a show? Oh man, probably, probably one time we went to see Yes. I think it was on, what was the name of the album after 90210? Oh, I know what story you're going to tell. Big Generator, 1987. Big Generator. So <laughs> we had crappy seats for this tour. And at the time when, when you were going like into the Meadowlands Arena in New Jersey, there'd be scalpers on the side of this like, almost like a little helix, you know what I mean? Like this little curve. And there would just be scalpers there and you would stop and you know, compare notes and say, I want this, whatever. So we stopped and this guy was like, I got front row seats. I got front row seats for you. We're like, uh, okay. And we looked at the tickets and like, oh yeah. Cause back then or still now, you know, like the front row of seats, uh, they were labeled, uh, seven, eight, nine. Right. And some scalpers would try to sell you one, two, and three as the front, but those were all the way in the back. So we at least knew that. Yeah, we knew that. And we looked at the ticket. I remember looking at the tickets and seeing they were section eight, which was the second yep, section. right in the middle. The second section, right in the middle, right in the front. What were yep. they like? 10th row or something like that? Yeah, they were fantastic seats. And I looked at these tickets and I said, we got to do this. Yeah. So we traded in our tickets and gave them, I don't know, 30, 40 bucks. And then we, you know, got into the parking lot and we were walking up to the gates when we actually looked at the tickets and they were for the next night. We bought tickets <laughs> for the following night. We didn't even look at the date. We were only concerned about where they were. And so we had to turn around and go home and come back the next day. But look, Jer, honestly, it, it could have been worse because he could have sold his tickets to the previous night. Yeah, I know. You know, we could have been there the next day and he sold us tickets to the previous night. That would have been terrible. Yeah, yeah. But at least we got to go back and see a show in the 10th row. Yeah. He just didn't want to come back the next night. He was trying to unload all of his inventory. <laughs> he didn't want to stand out there for another night. That was kind of smart on his part. Yeah. But uh, that's a little lesson for everyone. Look at the date. <laughs> Not very ethical, <laughs> but smart. So Richard, when you're doing your yes book, give us a call. That's a great story for the yes book. Yeah. So Jerry, you told me that we've got a giveaway on today's show. Is that correct? We do have a giveaway. When I was emailing back and forth with Richard, trying to set up a date, he was going to send me a hard copy of the book. Um, and I asked him if he could keep it and then we'll do a, a contest. And then the winner will have a book inscribed by Richard and him sign it, of course. You know, so he'll sign it to the person who wins the contest and then he'll mail it off to the, to the winner himself. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. So we're going to give away this book the way we give away everything on the podcast. Yep. We'll just pick someone from our email list at random Yep. and they'll win the book. And if you're not on the email list, there's a way to get on the email list. Just email Jerry at the at gmail.com. Say, put me on the mailing list. And you'll be entered to win the book. Yep. That's simple. That's simple. Awesome. Very generous of Richard, too. Oh, yeah. What a nice guy. I know. What a great guy. What a great guy. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are the TheRushCast. 
Again, to get an entry, to win the book signed by Richard, therushcast at gmail.com. You know what? Copy us on your Rush stories, too. When you're going to email Richard, email us, too. It'll be fun. Yeah. Jerry needs more stuff to read. I do. (laughs) It's one of my New Year's resolutions is to read more. That's a great resolution. The bass intro and outro was done by Lex. Great job, as always. And Jer, hope you have a quote for me. I do. I tried to tie it into the talking of concerts. Oh, nice. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to find something that had something to do with going to a concert, so I'm going to quote from the Spirit of Radio. Perfect. For the words of the prophets are written on the studio wall. Concert hall. Yeah. (laughs) That goes with the sounds of salesmen. I thought you were going to screech salesman like Getty does. (laughs) No, you don't want to hear that. Thanks, Jer. Have a good one. You too.